You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. So I'm Tracy Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Welcome to Poetry and Conversation. We're very happy that you join us tonight on this rainy, sometimes rainy, sometimes not, but confusing weather night nearing the end of National Poetry Month. Uh, we hope you'll also join us for some of our upcoming events. Uh, the next poetry event is an evening with the authors of In the Margins, which is on May 9th at 6.30 p.m. here. And then after that, there's Speaking Up and Speaking Out, poetry by Anne Bracken and Barbara Morrison on May 13th at 2 p.m. at the Roland Park branch. Uh, so please sign up for our email list, which is on the table, and pick up Compass and some flyers uh, so you can know more about what's coming up next. Tonight, we're very excited to welcome two talented writers, Elizabeth Hazen and Rose Solari. Uh, each poet is going to read, then we'll have a joint Q&A, and then each will read a closing poem or two. And then, of course, there will be time for you to mingle and buy books, which are on sale in the hallway. So our first reader is Elizabeth Hazen. She is a poet and an essayist whose work has appeared in Best American Poetry 2013, Southwest Review, The Three Penny Review, The Normal School, and other journals. She earned her BA at Yale and her MA at Johns Hopkins, where she was a student in the writing seminars. She teaches English at Calvert School in Baltimore, Maryland, where she lives with her son, Gregory, and their cat, Ferdinand. Uh, my introduction to... Uh, Liz Hazen's work, I think when I thought back um, in my time in Baltimore, was in the form of, I, of a haiku that lived over Interstate 83 for a month uh, with about 50 other poets and writers. Hers struck me. Under streetlights dusk become snowflakes, blossoms, stars. First, you must look up. I was struck by the direct command at the reader to see. But it's true, poets tend to spend their time seeing and rearranging to create understanding, using language as a tool and a mirror. In chaos theories, Hazen minds science and personal history to bring order, bring an order to experience. As Charlotte Pence deduces in the Kenyon Review, one can study all the books, study systems that we as people have identified as creations of order, but ultimately, Chaos wrecks nothing but time. Not only is Liz a fantastic writer, but she's generous to Baltimore writers, giving advice and hosting a reading series at Atomic Books. So please help me in giving a generous welcome to Liz Hazen. Hi. Thanks. Um, to Tracy for having Rose and me here, and to all of you for being here. Um, it's exciting to read at the Pratt. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I thought since it's uh, National Poetry Month, I would do something that I don't usually do, which is um, I have this funny little poem that's kind of after an Emily Dickinson poem, so I was going to read the Dickinson poem, um, not to put myself next to her, but and then read mine, which is sort of a response. So um, probably many of you know this one, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Um, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that, um, sorry, that, um, I can't read my writing, that takes so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strongest sea. You never in extremity, um, yet never in extremity, it asks a crumb of me. Okay, you can tell I shouldn't write things. My handwriting is hard to read. So um, yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about hope and sort of the other side of that, which I'm, we're probably all familiar with, which is disappointment. <laughs> um, so this is after the thing with feathers. 
The thing with feathers has hollow bones and lies through his crooked beak. He leaves you by a silent phone to overcome to sleep. The thing with feathers is built for flight, which means he'll surely leave. His promises are subtle slights, as menacing as grief. He asks no crumb, he stakes no claim, he warms you to your core. But disappointment is his game, he'll leave you wanting more. Um, so that's my little shout out to Emily Dickinson, sorry. Um, so I was going to read a couple of poems that have to do with mothers and motherhood, I guess partly because um, it's uh, going to be Mother's Day pretty soon. Um, so this is a poem um, that I wrote uh, shortly, I guess, after I was pregnant, um, sort of about the state of, of being pregnant, which can be a very kind of isolating and lonely uh time in, in some ways. Um, I wasn't literally on bed rest, but the poem is called Bed Rest. Um, one. I never knew what violence it takes to fill the cracks. The rain had been spilling in for months, our walls weeping, our ceiling like paper mache, damp globs falling to the floor. Now weather is without, and the men work to keep it there mending the spaces that let the outside in. Roofing hatchets, slate rippers, wrecking bars. The racket of their grunting fraternity keeps me awake until one man's cell rings and he tells the others to take five. I know the woman who has called. Her voice is like a chisel. She wants answers. No, says the roofer, he doesn't see that other woman anymore. That other woman is a slut and a liar. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he'll call later. Yes, he wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. Two, the men hammer at the cracks until they give, until the broken pieces fall away, and all that's left is space for them to fill with something else. There is no space left inside me. There is only this time, this bed, this body like a house, this telephone that does not ring, this noise above me like a playground song no one teaches silly girls, and inside me a fist clenching, someone waiting to break free. Then um, another poem uh, after that child was born, quite a bit after, um, and you know one thing in, in parenting I find you don't realize all the things you haven't taught your kid until it's too late, sort of. Um, and I'm not a person of um, particular faith, but there was this moment when I sort of realized that, you know, other children who go to church and so on, they have a concept of this thing called God, and I literally had never, you know, my son had no idea what that was. Um, this is called spring planting. If not the wind... Still something carries everything away. Just this morning, my son and I threw apple seeds to grass. He spoke of trees, but how much stays in one place long enough to root itself? How much blossoms, after all? Dandelion fluff, memory of a face. Our beginnings are just a cry for breath, our ends are but a sigh. And always something falls short of expectations. Cause and effect are everything. I warned him of birds, shadow, drought. Already the predicament of risk plagues him. We know nothing of what will happen, even less of who we are. He asks before he falls asleep, what is God? This word I never thought to teach him. He waits, and I think to myself, I open my eyes to see, I open my mouth. You know how the story ends. Um, I might read a couple of um, new-ish poems, or poems that aren't in the, in the book. Um, and uh, this one's called Diamond. Engendering myths of shattered stars, 
The diamond, too, is born of pressure. The derivation of the word is Greek, adameo, I tame, but the ring he gave me failed to keep me pacified. Our forms are carbon-based, but if emotions have no substance, how can anger tense the features of my face? How do words, lacking form beyond the curve of font, the flick of tongue, the measure of my breathing, break so easily a bond? I fear my heart has grown impenetrable. I skim his letters but make no reply. Synthetic diamonds ground to dust are used in blades that cut through steel. This I understand. Too well, in fact, I've learned how easily we manufacture might, how quick we redirect our strength to sever. Um, I'm just going to read a few more. Um, A lot of the poems in this collection were written... um, for um, a friend of mine, Flynn, who uh, at the time we seemed so old, but he took his own life when he was, I think, maybe 25. I think I was 23. Um, and it was sort of around springtime. Um, anyway, so I've been thinking, well, I think about him a lot in any case. But um, I'm going to read um, one poem that I actually don't think I've ever read out um, somewhere. So... Um, This is for Flynn. It's called His Name Here. One. For years, you let the morning light burn through the smoke that gave your breath dimension, that puffed up your words, arrogant parrots making claims. Months went by, seasons passed, the light shifted, and something caught you, the vibration of your own laughter, a shouting man outside, On the periphery, a shadow in the doorway, someone leaving and not coming back, the echo of a gunshot you did not hear. Two. Now, curtains drawn, night comes like lights darkening in a theater. Your body unsettles. The doctor showed you. You saw his face, his bones bright white against the black of your insides. You sleep deeply but dream of children born without faces, whole houses crumbling at your touch, boils blistering on your skin, rooms without windows or doors. Three. Silence is the air you breathe. The word unspoken is a name hanging heavy as wet clothes on the line. A body moves inside a body. Ashes settle in another country. Your body is full to bursting. There is no room for grief. A body breaking out of a body demanding space. How can ashes take so much space? And a single breath to name him. And uh, there's a lot of science in these poems. This one's called Physics Lesson. Um, They'd probably be able to. T- I mean, I think I, when there are things that I can't deal with, like grief or or love or feelings at all, um, I think science provides this really nice structured um, way of thinking and form of vocabulary that allows me to step away from it. Um, so this is another one that's um, for Flynn. Um, it's called Physics Lesson. Response to force defines the mass of things. A door defies a shoulder's thrust. A floor fractures a dropped glass. Fingertips submit to paring knives. And all around you bodies collapse like compact stars. Radiance defines location. Texture, shape, fleck of ash, bone, sinew, grain of pine, the ligature of meadow grass, the trajectory of stars. Experts agree. Whole galaxies are moving in reverse, red shifting toward lower frequencies. Why should this surprise you? Taillights glow like red dwarf stars on the highway out of town. Anonymous rooms conceal dark matter. Someone withdraws into a vacuum, breathes the variegated absences, the listless dawn. 
He is there, propped on the edge of a rented bed. All systems tend toward disorder, but look at his shoes, regimented beside the locked door. You want to show him something, but he draws the blinds, angles them down. When he is gone, you will cling to science, the emergent properties of bad weather, quantum mechanics, black holes, the promise that what you cannot see still lies, waiting somewhere just beyond your grasp. I think I'll read one more, uh, and I'll read a new one. Um, so this, um, I'm thinking a lot about how powerful language is. I mean, I think about that a lot anyway, but I think in our current situation, there's such a limited vocabulary, and I really do think that the inability to articulate complex thoughts is directly related to the inability to have them. Um, and... Um, this, you know, I was thinking about language and thinking in particular about the language used um, to talk about women. Um, so this is, and I'm an English teacher, a middle school English teacher, so this is another sort of lesson of, about literary devices, sort of, um, and it's called Devices. Rhyme relies on repetition. Pink drink, big wig, tramp stamp, rank skank. Alliteration, too. Peter Piper's pickled peppers, silly Sally's sheep. Silly trumping smart because the L's create consonants. Assonance repeats vowel sounds. Hot bod, dumb slut, frigid bitch. Even his line, girl, we'll have a fine time. Or her refusals, no, don't. In metaphor, we compare two things. Suppose a man calls a woman fox. We understand this is not literal. Same goes for pig, dog, bitch. Same goes for octopus, as in, he was an octopus. His hands were all over me. Metonymy relies on association. Suits, skirts, that joke about the dishwasher, if it stops working, slap the bitch. Synecdoche reduces a thing to a single part. He wants pussy, by which we must infer he wants a woman as the part does not exist without the whole. Context changes everything. And while repetition is not truth, power lies in words we hear repeated. We've been called so many things that we are not. We startle at the sound of our own names. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. That was really powerful. Um, I'm Shailene, and I work at the library also with Tracy. And I'm going to introduce Rose Solari now. Rose Solari is the author of three full-length collections of poetry, The Last Girl, Orpheus in the Park, and Difficult Weather, the one-act play Looking for Guinevere, and the novel A Secret Woman. She has lectured and taught writing workshops at many institutions, including the University of Maryland College Park, St. John's College, Annapolis, the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing at Arizona State University, and the Center for Creative Writing at the University of Oxford's Kellogg College in Oxford, England. In 2010, she co-founded Allen Squire Publishing, a collaborative indie publishing initiative with James J. Patterson. In 2012, ASP became an imprint of the Santa Fe Writers Project. Rose's awards include the Randall Jarrell Poetry Prize and Emma Award for Excellence in Journalism and multiple grants. When Rose Solari visits the house of Dora Wordsworth in one of her poems, she regrets the narrowness of Dora's life, writing with typical gorgeousness, I had nothing to wait for here, and that knowledge felt like heartbreak, like a field planted over fresh to conceal the starving soil beneath with yellow and white. If Dora Wordsworth had lived life more freely, perhaps she could have blossomed into a poet like Rose Solari herself, a poet who constantly celebrates the passionate wedding of the soul to the world. The moment when, as she puts it, 
Knowledge comes to us through our desires. We take the beautiful for our own, and a world opens up. Whether it is eros, family love, religious ecstasy, or love of the earth, passion leads to loss in these poems, but imagination writes the balance, restoring all that is lost in a new form. As Solari says to her dead brother of another country, they sang about as children, that country I went at last, last year, all the gold wine light of history, and songs cheap on the streets, your face was everywhere. I'm sure she will take us to a beautiful country tonight. Please help me to welcome Rose Solari. Well, that was such a beautiful introduction. Thank you. It's the greatest. Do, do I need, need this? Yeah. So you can't hear me if I do this. I like to do a little housekeeping. It just makes me feel more comfortable. Um, thank you. That was the most beautiful introduction. Thank you so much. I'm going to start with a poem from my second book, then move into some stuff from the new book, and then, as Liz did, read a couple things I've never read before. So get ready to get beginning picks, y'all. I'm going to experiment. But um, this is a poem from my second book, Orpheus in the Park. And I, too, was thinking about how Mother's Day is coming up. And this is from my late mom. It's a prose poem. So if you're trying to listen and hear line breaks, there aren't any. My mother's piano. What it must have cost her to carry that thing from rented apartment to rented apartment to rented house to the house they bought with the help of my father's GI Bill to the house I grew up in. Souvenir of her family's brief, mysterious period of prosperity, like my aunt's diamond ring, my mother's world is her baby grand, big as a boat, glossy as patent leather shoes. A literal-minded child, I worried that it, like other babies I had seen, was going to grow, and grow a lot, eventually squeezing us out of the living room so that we'd spend most of our time in the cold, damp basement or trapped in the narrow upstairs hall. If there's a God, I used to think, why is Mom so sad and mean? Why is her memory so bad that she remembers the B I got in geography but not the long, long list of A's? But I was talking about the piano, how she would smile when she sat down to it, closing her eyes as if the music that rose from her hands had hands of its own that massaged her face. How her fingernails would click against the keys, a backbeat I thought was so impossibly adult, like the face powder or the bright red polish she'd said I wasn't ready for yet. Three, pe three keys past an octave, she would boast, stretching her fingers out to show me the span of her hands, and I'd put my girl palm up against hers to measure the difference. Okay. I think sometimes, so she could have been a teacher, a singer, even an actress. Okay, I tell myself she got a raw deal. She was still able, in the grace of the absence of words, to make something beautiful and good, her hands moving like light, like water, over those keys. What came from her fingers then was a story, slow at first and a little dark, Speaking of generations who never had enough, and then of their children, and then of the fantasies that those children's children had. A curving staircase to walk down slowly, like Grace Kelly in a wide skirt. Good light, smooth men with real jobs, real money, who knew their way with a cigarette lighter. Day to day, my mother and I would be just two women who didn't know how not to hurt each other. But when she played, there was truce always. Her at her bench, me curled up on the rug beneath my mother's piano. Both of us caught in the knowledge of all she'd never be.
So my most recent book, The Last Pearl, has four poems that we drew it from my late brother. Um, you read from one of them so beautifully. Thank you. Uh, he was a Vietnam veteran. He was 10 years older than I was. So when I was a child, I, I really had no idea what was going on with him. And I kind of pictured uh, the war, I, like high school, because I was a little kid. So I thought they had lockers where they could pin up pictures. And I, you think, what you think. But um, it, it was always stunning to me when I got a little older and realized how little I knew. And how little, in some ways, we all knew about what happened to him. He died in 09, which was not from anything directly attributable attributable to what he experienced in Vietnam, though I do believe that his health problems afterwards had to do with being stationed in Okinawa where there was lots of chemical experimentation going on. But anyway, this is called Another Shore, and it's about me as a little girl trying to figure out where he was and what he's doing. Another Shore. It is essential to imagine one thing as another, as when the small, hard winter apple becomes a globe for the dollhouse schoolroom where the rubber children learn their geography, as when a pan of mud is really quicksand and in it G.I. Joe is sinking, sinking until a buddy pulls him out in time as when the old round wooden drying rack with all its bare arms up is your helicopter rising over the shores of Okinawa where you will find your brother not yet broken and carry him home. This one is called Treehouse of the Dream Child. It has been here forever. Who built it? Nobody knows. Time itself might have pressed these boards into rows, hammered home the nails. Nobody plays here. Neighborhood boys once hung their pennants from its windows while girls slipped hand over hand up the rope ladder. How high the grass grows. No one lives around here anymore. Come with me as I walk the perimeter of this field and don't be afraid. Though the earth is wild, nothing can hurt us here. And if we're lucky and the light is good and a thousand other elements conspire, we might see moving inside the one high room of the treehouse the dream child, hear the floorboards singing her step, see her new old face, safe in those walls, flying her solitary art, she is a word for keeping and losing, a talisman against this sky which is red-black now, and terrible, and our own. I think you read, you quoted another country, right? I, th I think I might have to read that. Thank you. Um, it's another poem from my brother. Um, my mom played piano, as you already heard, <laughs> and we used to sing a lot when we were kids around the piano. There are two Italian quotes in this poem. Uh, one is from a, a popular kind of folk song in dialect, and it means, um, what a beautiful thing is a day in the sun. And the second is a quote from a, an opera aria, which means, farewell to the past. And this is called Another Country. How you would swing me up onto your shoulders, my big, big brother, making us two in one, sky slung, a four-armed creature singing about the country we've never seen, except in pictures. Que bella costa imaginare sole. 
My knees, the wings of your shoulders, mom at the piano, her voice, the highest of high sopranos weaving over us. No one can say we didn't love each other then, that we weren't happy. Now you're two years gone, and nobody dances on anyone's shoulders in that earth-dark place where I think what's left of you must swim a deal at the Sato. And that country, I went at last, last year. All the gold wine light of history and songs cheap on the streets. Your face was everywhere. I'm going to do another one from the book and then a new one. Um, I think we all have thoughts about unlived lives. Um, choices we could have made that didn't work out, choices that we thought, I'm not going to do that right now, but maybe another time. And one of the challenging things about that is realizing how the older you get, the more choices you make, the more doors you close as well. Um, I have a kind of weird backwards insomnia. I go to sleep really easily. In fact, if there was like an Olympic event for falling asleep, I'd be really good at it. But I often wake up in the middle of the night. And this is a poem about that. And the title is also the first line, and it's somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. Somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m., the soul gets restless, leaves the body. We wake to the tight string tug. No, all you can do is wait, filling the time with books, self-scrutiny, or scotch, until that filament of self settles back in. Years ago, you had a chance for a different life. A door opened, but you were looking elsewhere, listening to someone's bad advice, and didn't hear the hinge creak, the voice whispering, this way. Or perhaps you did, but thought your chances infinite, told yourself you'd come back, you could always come back. Those are the breaks, your mother would say, if she heard you now, and she'd be right. But sometimes, you know you see it that unlived life. It passes quick in the corner of your eye. You glimpse yourself, what you might have been, a face that could be, but is not your own. She isn't angry, but she knows everything you have missed and is writing it down. I'm going to end with a new one, and then we can discuss. Um, Thank you so much for being here in this terrible weather. It feels terrible to me anyway. It's really cold. My husband keeps saying it's not that bad, but, um, but I'm summer hungry. This is a new one. I've been working on a series of poems about musicians and songwriters. I've always loved music deeply. I can't sing. I'm married to someone who sings like an angel. I. I've always been surrounded by great singers, and I, I envy them, and I envy the effect they have on us. So this might take you back in the past a little bit, but this poem is called Hunger. It's brand new, and it's for Jackson Brown. Shut up. <laughs> His voice is the taste of Michelob and cheap weed, a late spring evening leaning into summer, in somebody's absent parents' rec room. Black lights and band posters saturate before using, spinning our smoke-addled heads. Now someone picks up a guitar and the still, though not for much longer, tenor star of our school chorus starts singing, Doctor My Eyes, and everyone, even the metalhead kids, chime in. We all know this singer's story, the loss of his young, suicidal wife, and earlier, how he strummed his way from California to New York City, fell in love with Lou Reed's muse, Nico, who, according to pop legend, 
popped his cherry when he was just about the age we all are now. Maybe that's why that summer even the boys loved Jackson Brown, working with gels and blow dryers to mimic the silk-winged fall of his hair, while every girl believed that she alone could heal his complicated heart. Now I want to understand, we sang and sang again, facing into the future, hungry, certain that suffering, when it came, could only make us wiser and more beautiful. Thanks. something that you know you're thinking about and suddenly you're sitting down and putting your thoughts down. What I mean I'm supposed to use the purpose. Right, yes. I wish that I wrote on a schedule, but I really I don't I don't I'd like to, I always tell myself I'm going to do the, you know, 30 minutes each day, and I just, I, in, I plan to, um, but it usually ends up being, <laughs> it usually ends up being, you know, um, oh, I have an idea, and it's, you know, long driving or some very inconvenient time, jotting things down, and then going back to it later. Um, in the summer, when I have more time, because I teach during the year, um, I'm a little more disciplined, so. Then I know I have you know, a couple hours each day that I can use uh, during the school year. So grab, grab those minutes wherever I can. Well, for me, I guess it depends on what I'm working on. Like right now, I'm working on a lot of poems, so I'm really hungry to get to them every day. And um, when I get my publishing work done and my editing work done, that's the first thing I want to do. But I found, I, I've written one novel, and I found that for that, I absolutely needed huge chunks of time. I can get a lot of work done on a poem in an hour. I mean, that poem I just read has gone through several revisions, but it's been, it's so in my mind, I don't have to plan to go to it. I want to go to it as soon as I'm done with my work. But with, with writing a novel, because there's so many interweaving characters and plot lines, I did find with that that I would have to block up huge chunks of time on my calendar say those three days are nothing but that. But I think for most people who really love to write, it's not so much having to schedule it, but you're really anxious to get to it, so you figure out a way to get to it around the cooking and the dishes and the kids and whatever else, if that makes sense. But I know a lot of people have great luck with a really regular morning schedule or evening schedule. I've, I've never been able to do that either. Well, for the amount of morning person, so. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who write fiction, some of them are here, and I do think maybe they do. I don't know, like I'll have friends who will work for like eight hours a day writing, and I don't think I've ever done that, and if I had the eight hours, I don't think I could do that. Um, yeah, I'm much more like an hour or two, and then I, I actually need to not do it for a while. Um, I'll see when I have more time, maybe <laughs> start writing something else. Um, oh, good evening. Um, well, I, I love both of your works. Really nice. Um, I have a question. Um, I've been going to some of the open mic nights in Baltimore City, and um, I see like 
the poetry now is like totally angry and very sexual. But um, I like, <laughs> but I like um, how um, both your poems are seem like they evolve from uh, different topics, like your brother and yours, like motherhood. And I like what you talked about um, when you don't like dealing with certain things, you go to science and it pulls out different um, aspects of your personality and expression. So if you were able to do an open mic, would that help with your creative process? Um, would it would it break your your rhythm? How you how you write? How you create? If you went to like open mic and did just did something impromptu, is it improv? improv or? Yes, improv. improv. Ooh, so they are making it up as they go. No, some of them they they memorize their poems. Oh, okay. I guess they have like a repertoire. Mm -hmm. Do you see any of your work um, that you would any of your poems that you could see yourself? Off the top of your head, you totally live it, remember it, and get it presented. Yeah, I, I would want to practice a lot, but it might not. I'd be really nervous. It's um, really. I think it's really good to to get your work out there. I mean, I don't know where you are. It sounds like you're a poet, but actually, no. I every now and then, uh, I guess like in stands, but I actually I did write a poem the other night. I didn't know where it came from. I haven't written it yet. Well, I would I would suggest going to an open mic night and getting it out there. I, I mean, I think I think it's very useful to hear people's response to your work. I started giving readings really young, and I think it really helped me a lot as far as because you can sometimes you can even tell oh they all fell out during that stanza, but then they all came back. I mean, sometimes you can really get valuable feedback from an audience. I think yeah. saying it out loud, even if even if there's no audience. I mean, this is one reason you know sometimes. People want to work together, and, and it's hard for me because I have to say it out loud. Yep. Like I'm reading it aloud over and over and over again just to hear it. So, uh, but you don't need an audience for that. Yeah, saying it out loud is important. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I I work out loud all the time. I'm always talking with poems because they you know, should the different. Like they, pardon me, do you find the process of writing different if you know that you're going to intend to say it publicly? Rather than seeing it in a written form, like I'm going to publish these books, I'm going to publish these poems, and it's actually written. Rather than knowing that this is a series of poems that I'm going to verbally express only, well, do you think it would change your creative process? It might, but I always I've been thinking since I was about 16 that I want these poems out there in one way or another. So I've always been thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, I think if I if I think about that too much, I won't ever write another <laughs> word because that inner voice is just way too loud telling me to shut up. <laughs> um, um, so I think I actually have to do the opposite. And you know, there've been periods of time, like really soon after grad school, when a number of my classmates were having you know all kinds of success, and so my mind was just completely obsessed with the idea of publication and recognition. And I don't think I wrote really for about two or three years. Um, because it just, every time I sat down to write, it was just this, you know, oh, nobody wants to read that. Or, you know, I was hearing the reaction and it's like, that, yeah, that's bad. Um, so I have to not think about that too much. <laughs> it just much. I'm curious how you have jumped from poetry to longer works. Um, I think it's like being an athlete. I always think of poets as sprinters. Mm -hmm. And um, so, if, if you can address that, I'd be very interested. Well, I, I really don't do it, but they're like a couple thousand words now. You know, okay. All right. All right. Um, well, it was really hard, and it took a long time. <laughs> and and being um, ambitious, my novel has intertwining timelines from the Middle Ages, the 1970s, and the present. It travels from the United States to England and back, and all I know is that the next one's going to have one narrator, one timeline, one, <laughs> one story. But it was it was a real it was a beautiful experience to write it because I had to learn how to write in a different way all over again. 
and it went through multiple drafts, and it went through. But you know, I really wanted. I've always loved narrative. A lot of my poems are narrative, and I've always loved novels. So I really, I really wanted to write up a long form narrative, and I did. You know, how successful you're not, it's up to you. Um, but it felt terrific to do and to live with those characters, and I missed them when it was over. I really missed them, and. I think there's a sequel. So you you start to inhabit it. They're real. I mean, people who come to you when you're writing fiction are absolutely real. They're not people you made up. I mean, they they arrive, they show up in your dreams, they talk to you, they pursue you. So you know, you spend about a year with all these voices in your head, and you think either I'm going to write a novel or I'm going to check into you know <laughs> McLean or something. So so I wrote the novel instead. It was cheaper in the long run, and it, it it's a wonderful way to think that it's really different. Both of you have been writing for a while, and I'm wondering if there are poems that you've been working on for years, or maybe just six months you can't finish, or subjects that you've tried to write about but you have been unsuccessful at it, and you might be able to talk about what that is like and where they're hiding and what uh, what that space is like. Um, yes. <laughs> um, no, there's definitely poems that have been put away and, and brought out over time. I, mean, I think I struggle the most with writing happy poem, like writing a love poem, um, or, you know, when things are good and um, everything is kind of going well and I feel balanced, I don't need to write about it, so it's, it's hard for me to do that, um, which is like a good problem to have, but I'm still, still trying to write that love poem that actually is true. I tried to write about my brother for a long time. And when I was in undergraduate school, I remember writing a poem about him and being told by the professor and several other people's in the, people in the class that it was absolutely cliched and full of everything everyone's already heard about Vietnam and no one needs to hear this anymore, which was really sort of troubling. I mean, maybe it wasn't a very good poem at the time. I don't really remember it so much right now. But I remember thinking, okay, so a guy goes away at 18 and he's one person and he comes back at 21 and he's completely different. How can that be a cliche? How can that be something that people just say, that happens? So I thought, okay, I'm not saying it well or I'm not saying it right or I need to get somewhere else to say it. And I think sometimes with topics it takes you a long time. I think it took me it took me years, um, maybe because I was so much younger than the rest of my family. When I was born, my, my brother was 10 and my sisters were 12 and 17, so it's sort of like having this whole other family. Um, so I think sometimes things really do, they can take years, and why they take years can be both a combination of whether you're ready to tackle this subject and see it, but also whether you have the distance from it. I mean, you have to be both emotionally ready, which means being vulnerable, but then you have to have a little bit of distance at perspective. So it's kind of contradictory. You have to really feel it deeply and openly, but you also have to be able to pull back. And I think that's why some topics take years, to be honest, or at least that's been the way for me. I mean, I know, I know for example, my mom had me when she was 47, and, and, and we had a complicated relationship, as you can tell. Um, but I never really realized how stressful that was for her until the year I turned 47 and thought, how would I feel if I was pregnant right now? And I thought, well, I wonder if she was such a bitch. I mean, <laughs> that's really an incredibly stressful thing to have to go through. So I think it's a funny, I don't know if I'm making sense, but it's a funny combination, I think, with certain topics of being able to be open but also distant at once. Um, Does that make sense? I mean, I think that's like 
the issue that I deal with mm -hmm. in writing all the time. It's like, yes, having enough distance, being able to fully feel your emotions and allowing yourself those emotions, but then enough distance to be able to talk about them in a way that's not totally indulgent and sentimental. And you know, at least, I mean, that's, and so that's part of the science thing for me. I also feel like probably more than subjects I can't write about, there are the subjects that I think I've written you know, I don't even know how many Flynn poems I've written, and I really feel like all of those are sort of the same poem. Um, a lot of divorce poems, a lot. I mean, in some ways, I feel like I just write the same poem over and over and over again because I have maybe like one thing to say. I just can't, I just have to keep saying it, um, which is a, another problem, <laughs> or maybe not a problem, but I mean, there is that obsessive, you know, the subject. You know, I, I definitely look at poems sometimes and I think, oh, you know, that's. Another one of those. Right. <laughs> I just keep going back to the same things. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious when you look back at earlier work and what do you what do you like? What do you when you look back at earlier work, what do you like, what do you not like? Like what are the what are the attributes of the stuff that you're still really fond of? And then what are the attributes of the stuff that you know didn't wear so well? How far back are we going? Eighth <laughs> <laughs> grade. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm usually kinda happy with the way things sound. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's maybe a lack of complexity of emotion and really early stuff, or, you know, like there's just anger that's so raw and one-sided, it's not really that interesting anymore. Um, probably never, never was, really, but like, you know, looking at it, that just seems, yeah, so I think, especially, yeah, much, much younger stuff, there's a lack of recognizing the complexity of things. Um, but yeah, the sound of stuff I usually am sort of happy with. Um, and honestly, when I look at really old stuff, I'm just so happy that I did it. I mean, I was such a good worker and I wrote so much. I'm thinking like high school and college age, but I was just doing it all the time. And just, I mean, <laughs> Might be crap, but the sheer volume is, <laughs> is is something I I wish I wish um, I'd love to go back to that. Well, I think you can't go back to that because now your standards are higher. Right? But I think I think my I think uh, let me try that again. I think. I would never want to disown any work that I've published, but I think sometimes in my earliest poems, I was a little bit too concerned with my own personal pain, as opposed to what was going on around me or a larger view. I think that as my work has grown, the lens has gotten wider, and that's what I hope will continue to happen. Um, I don't disown any of the poems from my first book, Difficult Weather, but they're very very personally located, with a few exceptions. So I think I like them, but I'm glad to be where I am. Does that make sense? <laughs> and other questions? We can move to um, closing comments if you Okay, so I was in Nashville a couple of years ago and I was talking with a musician and he listened to only top 40 songs and he would try to recreate the songs he would hear in the top 40 and just there was an actual method to writing these songs. Are, are there trends in writing poetry and it being published that you try to follow and stay current? On that, do you follow that, or is it no? Like that? I know that's that's a really interesting question. I just read a, a great article about the musician Lord last weekend in the New York Times Magazine, 
where she was saying, if you really want to write a great pop song, you have to love the form. I was really struck by that. She said, you can't, she said, people who try to write a great pop song and they're dismissive of the form simultaneously um, will never write a great pop song. You have to really embrace the form. And, and she even quoted at length from a Don Henley song, The Heart of the Matter, which is about the most uncool reference I could think of anybody <laughs> her age making. But she was genuinely impassioned about the form and the way this song flowed. I think when, when something's trendy, if you have a passion for what that is, you might be able to create something out of that response. But I personally have almost never been able to write according to the trend. And that might be a flaw, you know? It might be something I need to work on, but I've never really, like for a while when language poetry was very popular, poetry that's sort of all about sound and doesn't really make much literal narrative sense, I was never able to write a language poem. It just doesn't appeal to me. That's not how my mind works. Um, it would be interesting if you could. When, I, I don't know. Well, I'm not sure that I would even be able to identify single trends because I feel like there's such range of what people are doing. And I also think, just going back to Grantley's question, another thing when I look at my old stuff is that like my voice was always there. So even stuff I was writing when I was 12 was so, I, at least I can, I mean, it's the same voice that I have now. Um, and I guess I'm just too, like, into, you know, obsessed with my own voice in a way. I don't think I would want to try on other stuff. I don't know. And the one other thing that I thought of when you asked that, um, that my father and I joke about, and this is a thing that I, hope I don't do and I don't want to do is turning things into verbs that are not verbs. And I think a lot of people do that in contemporary poetry. It's like the verbing of the English language. And I think we already have verbs. And, you know, we, we do not need to turn perfectly good, you know, adjectives and nouns into verbs. So that's something that I actually very consciously try to avoid. Um, so, I mean, they do it with colors a lot. I'm sure I've done that. But, you know, I'm trying to think of a good one, which I can't right now. Well, and also poetry doesn't have a top 40, you know what I mean? We're in, <laughs> we're in a slightly different world. We have these little, there tend to be groups and magazines and universities and places where different trends are happening, but there's no one like top 40 for poetry in that same way, like there is for pop music. And I think that makes a difference. I've actually always been really glad of that. I'm really glad we don't have that kind of pressure. I can't imagine what it's like. I can't imagine what it's like to be Bruce Springsteen and have to make, you know, or, or God, I love him so much, David Bowie. Do you feel like you have to make a very multi-selling record? Poets have a lot more freedom, I think, in that way. <laughs> I love how optimistic you are. You know, I'm sorry. I'm the older one. I'm supposed to be jaded. You're supposed to be. Oh, right, right. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you could mention a contemporary poet that you do find inspiring or you know that. I'm I'm crazy in love with like like if I were a stalker I would probably stalk her um, Linda Gregerson who I think is just an amazing poet her her selected poems is out right now it's called Prodigal and I've been in love with her forever she has an incredible voice an incredible sense of music complex subject matter interesting form I'm I'm really crazy about her and Yusuf Komenyakov who I think probably a lot of people have heard of, um, who I just, everything he does interests me. This is always a question I should prepare for, but I'll shout out to my friend Charlotte Pence, who um, has a great book out. And I really, I wish I read more contemporary poetry because there's so much and a lot of it's great. Um, but yeah, I would say she's someone I enjoy. So 
So I'm going to, um, oops. I'm going to hold this because I can't figure it out. Um, <laughs> Are you okay holding it? It's fine. Um, so I'll end with one that I feel like is a slightly more positive than some of my poems. Poem, and it's also fits with the whole mother theme. Um, so, and a student actually did a report today that mentioned this, so it seemed like a good one to read. So, this is called Ceres, um, and there's a little blurb from um, the NASA website about Ceres. Um, Gravitational perturbations from Jupiter billions of years ago prevented Ceres from becoming a full fledged planet. Ceres ended up among the leftover debris of planetary formation in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. So basically this was, was a planet briefly, but then, then wasn't. Um, in one version of the story, Jupiter, virile god of sky and thunder, is to blame for her limitations. His gravitational pull enough to stultify her growth. Her lesser form, sculpted by impacts, obeys the dictates of his belt. It's true. But let us not forget her domain, growth, harvest, motherly love, and like all mothers, she is volatile, fierce, instinctive. She is no mere passenger. At any moment, she could decide to leave her orbit, come raining down on us, blooming apocalypse. So scientists punch numbers, keep her in check, as if they could stop her coming fools. She may be invisible even in the brightest light, but I can see her burning from a hundred million miles away. Who cares if the calculations don't bear this out? Let me tell you something about the bearing out of things. When he pushed through me, gagging for that first breath, no equation could contain his need, my relief, the bleeding. And when my heart rate dropped, I might have disappeared, a star burning out, an asteroid imploding, substance transforming to debris. But I wanted only to sleep, wake up again, and feed my son. From the moment we are born, gravity presses down on us. We fight to lift our heads. We bear hunger, secrets, the passage of time, the limitations of our bodies, the knowledge of what we almost were, and of what we are. Oh, Ceres, I am not afraid of you. You were not made for destruction. And however the universe has failed you, you endure, vivid in darkness, indefinable. You are exactly where you want to be. I'm going to do an older one, one from my previous book, Orpheus in the Park. It's a book that's half, about half elegies and about half retellings of classical mythology. Um, thank you all. Thank you for coming. Thank you for organizing, Tracy and Darlena, who read us so beautifully. And thanks for coming out tonight. So the elegies in Orpheus in the Park are some for actual people, and then some are for ideas, things, uh, illusions ways of seeing yourself that maybe have changed. And I think this title self-explanatory is called Elegy for the Virgin. When at seven I watched him rising shirtless from the blue corrugated circle of his parents' Sears Roebuck pool, saw him run the bright towel imprinted with football players helmeted and leaping over his arms and legs, then shake his hair from side to side, the water spinning for him a halo of falling light. I ran to my older sister's room to tell her that the ultimate thing had happened. I had fallen in love. The boy next door, no less. His mother grew roses, red and pink, and had given him her gray eyes. It was here, I thought, Years later, lying beneath that first lover, all the fumbling and fear, it was for this. 
How soon did I realize that every time I touched someone, another possibility blinked out? And the radiance we found was not the kind that surges through the body flame, kickball, or jumping rope on summer nights, but more like the beam of a flashlight you carry into the cellar again when you can't sleep. You almost know what you're doing. You can almost see what you're trying to find. Sometimes I try to imagine my body back to its virginity. Did I know something in my untouched state, lost to me now so long I've forgotten its shape? Sometimes I wish I could live again for a week, for a month, in a world not cracked by feeling, not made dangerous by desire, where it was blessing enough, and all I wanted on this earth to see Brian Fugle, 11 years old, in his chopped lowrider Levi's, standing in the appleless Eden of his mother's rose tree garden, a bearer of mystery, but no despair. Um, so I just want to close by thanking um, Rose and Liz uh, for a really beautiful evening. And um, just want to thank you all for coming out on a kind of rainy day, rainy day, too. Um, and just want everyone to know that we're selling the poets' books at the table up in the corridor here. So please support poetry and then by making a purchase. We also have an email list um, that is, uh, if you get on it, we'll let you know every time we have a poetry event at the Pratt Central Library. So please sign up on that. And if you take a minute to fill out an evaluation form um, about your experience tonight, that'll help us plan for future programs. So that's it. Thank you very much. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.